Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. As we mark the 20th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British to Chinese sovereignty, author and China analyst Mark O'Neill continues his look back at Hong Kong's history and the lead-up to June the 30th, 1997. Last week, we talked about the two opium wars and the treaties that led Britain as a colonial power to have control of Hong Kong Island, Kowloon and the New Territories, as well as more than 200 surrounding islands. Mark also told me about how in the 1970s and 80s, in fact, more than three million Hong Kong people had British passports. But two nationality laws implemented by the British meant that they did not have right of abode in the UK. To start off this week's programme with Mark, I first turned to a British television panorama documentary called A Matter of Honour, which interviewed then British Foreign Minister Sir Geoffrey Howe about those nationality laws in front of a studio audience in London. It then moved to a studio in Hong Kong, where we hear from two well-known figures. But first, here's Sir Geoffrey Howe. Why can you not offer them that prospect? Why would it be unacceptable to the House of Commons? Because if you put it in the context of the whole way in which we've had to develop our immigration policy since the end of the war, when the British Empire first emerged into the post-war scene, there were literally hundreds of millions of people around the world who could claim the right to settle here as of right. And in contrast to countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, which have been in the business of attracting immigrants continuously over many centuries indeed, Britain's task has been to restrict the numbers of people who could theoretically come here. And in 1981, long before this agreement was arrived at, the House of Commons then decided quite plainly that we could not continue to extend to the British passport holders in Hong Kong the right of settlement or abode in this country. We hear from Lee Chuk Yan, who's about 32 at the time and had been held in Beijing at the time of the Tiananmen Massacre on June the 4th, 1989, so shortly before he speaks here. Mr Lee these days is a trade union leader, activist and co-founder of the Labour Party. Um, Mr Lee, you've actually been in Beijing, haven't you? What, what happened to you there? I was detained in Beijing for three days. And the reason for the detention is be that because I represent groups in Hong Kong to um, carry money to, to Beijing to support the student in Beijing. And I was interrogated and was asked to, to write a confession that I was wrong in contacting the student groups, the student leaders. And uh, they always repeat one thing, is that if... I explain clearly everything, then I can leave. And secondly, when you look at the TV in China and also the explanation from the people who interrogate me, is that the student movement now is counter-revolutionary rioter. And, this, and also they emphasize that uh, there are overseas power in supporting the student. And you fear that the same thing might happen in Hong Kong once it uh, was handed over to China? Uh, I think, uh, you know, when you look at the history of, of China, uh, this is not the first time that there are a purge of the people in, in China. And I think uh, the, all the people in Hong Kong is worried in the future that something similar will happen to them. And actually, I think the fear is very well grounded because it's not just me who have been detained at, at this moment. I think there are other people of Hong Kong that are now being detained in China. And also, historically, lots of people who came to Hong Kong 
had been detained in the past history. Then we hear from the late Jack Edwards, who was a prisoner of war in Taiwan during the Second World War, after the fall of Singapore to the Japanese military. He died in 2006. He was chairman of the Royal British Legion here and worked doggedly to get British passports for Hong Kong widows of men who had fought against the Japanese invasion here during the Second World War. Jack Edwards, can I come to you? And yes. you have lived here for 20 years, but you've also lived in Britain. You surely understand the problems in Britain. Yes. What have you got to say to this question? I've got to say this. I hold you the flag which was put up in Hong Kong August the 18th, 1945, by men who risked their lives for freedom, liberty, and democracy. My remarks out to the servicemen. This flag was flown here before the British fleet arrived by very brave men. This flag represents supposedly justice, liberty. Neville Chamberlain, when he came back, just like Sir Geoffrey Hull, waved a piece of paper to us in 1939. He said, I hold you a sacred document. That was given by a dictator. We were marching in uniform in no time. I say to Sir Geoffrey Howe, you will go down in history like Neville Chamberlain. And I warn Mrs. Satcher also that somebody one day will say, depart, I say, in the name of God, go. Let us have done with you. Because quite frankly, you are putting these people in the, in the face of death and, and, and injury by your actions. Thank you very much indeed. We then move into the in the early 1980s, of course, in 1983 to 1984, you have the negotiations going on between Britain and China that result in the joint declaration on the future of Hong Kong. Yes, the first clarity on this came when Sir Mario Maclehos, who was the Hong Kong governor, he went to Beijing in the spring of 1979 and he asked Deng Xiaoping about 1997. And Deng said, you should put your hearts at ease. Investors should put their hearts at ease. In 1997, we will, we will resume sovereignty. So that was a very clear indication of Chinese policy. Now, the British tried to negotiate 50 years more of British rule. They were offering China sovereignty. So the flag will change. Hong Kong will become part of China. But we will manage it for another 50 years. So this was offered, but China refused. Yeah, I was going to say, well, that was complete cloud cuckoo land to actually say that, you know, you can fly the Chinese flag, but we'll, in essence, carry on ruling it. Well, no, it wasn't cloud cuckoo land, because you can argue that why has China allowed the British to stay for so long? It could have taken over China at any moment after 1949, but it didn't. Obviously, Hong Kong serves China's purposes. Why not have another 50 years? But Deng Xiaoping and the other Chinese leaders are very clear. Hong Kong is going to be handed back to China, the whole of it, not just the new territories and the, and the 200 islands, but everything. So then the British have to have a negotiating strategy to come up with an agreement for what happens after 1997. So that's what happens between 83 and 84, and the negotiations are very difficult and very complex. And they end up with this Sino-British Declaration if of um, September 1984, which sets out the one country, two systems for what will happen after 1997. 
1979, Britain has its first woman Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Now, how is she involved in the joint declaration and what is her relationship with Deng Xiaoping? Well, there's this famous visit she made to Beijing in, in September 1982 and she's just won the Falklands War, which was quite an extraordinary war. I mean, so far away from the UK and very close to Argentina. The Falklands are very close to Argentina, but she'd, she won the war. And this war was extremely popular at home. She was extremely popular among the electorate. And as you know, she was a very arrogant, proud woman. And she was also a lawyer. So she goes in to see Deng Xiaoping. And she starts to talk about the treaties. So the Treaty of Hong Kong, the Treaty of Kowloon, the Treaty of the New Territories. This is her starting point in the negotiations. And Deng becomes completely angry because the Chinese position is we don't recognise any of these treaties. And he starts swearing and using very vulgar language about her. And the interpreter <laughs> doesn't <laughs> translate any of it. And really, it's, uh, it's like chalk and cheese. There's no meeting of minds at all. So, in fact, the, the visit was completely wasted. Now, if Thatcher had read all the briefing papers and had listened to all her advisers who had told her what China's position was, she would have approached it in a much more constructive and a much more humble manner. But I think, in the end, Deng would have insisted on taking Hong Kong back anyway, so I, I don't think it would have made any material difference. But, but it was just a, a remarkably unsuccessful visit, and I remember she walks out of the Great Hall, and she's walking down the steps, and she slips. And this photo was on the front page of all the Chinese papers the next day because it was, a, it was a kind of sign, a divine sign, that the, the British imperial power had slipped and lost. So that was Margaret Thatcher's visit to Beijing in 1982, ahead of the joint declaration in 1984. Now, at that time, I mean, how did Margaret Thatcher uh, envisage uh, what the future of Hong Kong would be? Well... I think she believed that uh, Britain was still a very important country and had a great deal to offer, and therefore China would be receptive to the idea of 50 more years. But many of her advisers knew this wasn't possible. Remember, MacLehose had been told in 79 that this was not possible, so it must have been written in black and white for her to read. So uh, what I suspect was she was full of hubris after the Falklands War, and she thought, I can do anything. She imagined that she could negotiate something, but... In fact, the only negotiations to be done were as to what the arrangements would be for after 1997 and the handover. So what they do end up with is one country, two systems for 50 years. Now, considering that China is a communist state, was this quite a remarkable agreement? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, China is a one-party Stalinist state built on the model of the Soviet Union, and it still is today. And yet they agreed to let Hong Kong keep its uh, own legal system, its own currency, its own participation in international organizations. It doesn't have to pay taxes to the central government. It can keep its freedom of speech. It can keep its educational system. You know, all the churches and so on can keep their schools and hospitals here and continue operating as normal. It's a system completely different from that in the mainland. And China agreed to all this. I don't think it had to agree. I think we must give a lot of credit to the British negotiators who would have played with a very weak hand against the Chinese. 
but convinced Beijing that if it insisted on one country, one system, then there would be a huge flight of capital and population. Hong Kong would be degraded very rapidly. And therefore, they persuaded China to agree to all this. But I have to say, when, when the news of this came out, everyone was astonished. One of the most important tours the Queen has ever undertaken was in China in 1986. Her visit was a critical piece of diplomacy, coming soon after the fractious negotiations to return Hong Kong to China. At the start of her reign, the Great Wall was completely out of bounds. But here she was, receiving five-star treatment from her Chinese hosts. She was given privileged access to the newly excavated army of terracotta warriors. Normally one visits the terracotta warriors by standing on the walls around the edge and looking down at them. And we were most remarkably allowed to step into the pit, as it were, and walk amongst them as though we were part of the army. And one felt a tremendous sense of privilege. And she was clearly as enthusiastic, as struck by it as, as, as I was, indeed I our Chinese host as well. A test of her diplomatic abilities came at a lunch she hosted for Deng Xiaoping, the veteran and energetic communist leader. Please accept the warm and respect from an old Chinese man. <laughs> We'd been sitting at the table for 10 minutes, I suppose. And the Queen was sitting opposite Deng Xiaoping, who was, I was sitting alongside him. And she noticed he was fretting uneasily. And she remembered, of course, that he was a train smoker. And she leant across to me and said, I think Mr. Deng would be rather happier if, if he was told he was allowed to smoke. And I told him that. And I've never seen a man light up more cheerfully than that. It's a very human touch, and he appreciated it. The Queen had invited virtually the whole Chinese government to a banquet on board Britannia. It was an evening which bowled over her own entourage, let alone the Chinese. Just as we, however reluctantly, respond to the theatre of monarchy and how we get those tingles down our spine, to be there on the deck of the Royal Yacht watching the Royal Marines beating the retreat uh, in Shanghai. You know, something that's never happened before. And you feel a huge thrill and you can sense the people around you responding and, and feeling that it's part of something they, they're never going to see again. You actually met Sir Geoffrey Howe in the mid-1980s. Well, after the, the joint agreement was signed, Britain and China were in a kind of honeymoon period. So, 1986, the Queen goes to Beijing as part of this honeymoon, and she had this large reception in the Diaoyutai guest house, and so I was allowed to attend, and it was a huge room. And I realised this would be the only time in my life I would get to meet her, so I was quite excited. But then, once I was in the room, I met the diplomats, and they said, oh, no, no, you can't meet her. No, no, we decide if, if you meet her, and if you do meet her, you don't speak. She speaks first. Those are the rules. So I said, OK. And why, what did you want to tell the Queen? Well, what I didn't tell the diplomat was that I had a little uh, speech I wanted to give her, which was that the Hong Kong people didn't want to return to China. A majority wanted to keep the status quo, and China was a communist, Stalinist regime, and Britain shouldn't be handing them over. 
in this manner. And I was fearful that the Queen hadn't been informed about this by her advisers, and I feared that they only told her what they wanted her to hear. So anyway, I, I stand in the room about two metres from the Queen, and she's receiving all these people and talking to them. So there she is, chatting to these people, and I'm standing there. The diplomats are very, very smart. I've said nothing, but they've obviously sussed out that I might say something, and a bit unpredictable, so they don't introduce me. So I'm quite frustrated, so I march around the room with <laughs> steams coming out of my ears, and there's Geoffrey Howe. So I go and talk to him. Now, he's a politician, so... As it were, it's kosher. You can ask him anything. So I, I gave him my little speech, and then he very patiently explained that the British side bargaining position was very weak. They had no military leverage over China. They couldn't defend Hong Kong against Chinese invasion. Uh, China had a very strong legal case. China had a very strong moral case, to take it back. So Britain could only negotiate the best it could by persuasion, and, and he pointed to the One Country, Two Systems Agreement. And I have to say, after 15 minutes talking to him, I was convinced that, uh, that I think, given the situation that they were all in, I think they produced an extraordinarily good agreement for Hong Kong people. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the handover ceremony for Hong Kong, held jointly by the Government of the United Kingdom and the Government of the People's Republic of China. We have the joint declaration in 1984, the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, so key historical moments in, in the history of Hong Kong and mainland China. 1992 is also a key date. It's when Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong, arrives, and he's a politician, so he's a different kind of governor. He's the first governor of his kind. That is to say, his whole career has been in politics in the UK. He has no China background, he has no civil service background, he has no colonial background. So he's a completely clean slate. He was given the job because he'd won the election for the Conservative Party, but he himself had lost his seat. So the, the Conservative leaders felt very embarrassed. He'd done a great service for the, par for the party, but he lost his seat, so we've got to give him something good. So they sent him over here, and his whole career had been in a parliamentary democracy. That was what he was used to. So he arrives, and from the beginning, this is his priority, is to widen the democratic votes in Hong Kong, give more power to the, the Hong Kong public. This is in part, I think, a reaction to Tiananmen, the sense that you're handing Hong Kong over to this regime, so you've got to give them more protection by setting up more democratic institutions to enable them to protect themselves better after 1997. But these proposals are hugely opposed, not only by Beijing, but also by the business community in Hong Kong. And they say Britain has run Hong Kong since 1840, and you've had very limited democracy in all that time, mm -hmm. and you've run the city very successfully, and you've created a very high living standard, one of the highest in Asia, without a democratic system. You've, you've got the good results of a democracy, but you don't actually have democracy itself. So why do we have to do it now? And China is extremely angry and says we won't accept these changes. Now, and you speak Mandarin. What did they call Chris Patton? Qian Gu Zui Ren. 
That's a sinner for, ten, for a thousand years. This was also the Chinese approach, which was um, we're getting it back in 1997. We've already got the joint declaration and the basic law as to what Hong Kong will be like. How come you, you arrive with just five years to go and start to change it? So they became very angry with, with Patton. And what I hear was in the last two years, he had more or less nothing to do because China wouldn't deal with him. And everything involved dealing with China. So he would sit in his very nice governor's house. And if you were a journalist <laughs> flying in from America or Europe on a Friday, you could get an interview with him on a Saturday because he had plenty of time. All the hard work was being done by his, his staff, who China would agree to meet. He was a, a contentious figure with China, and perhaps that wasn't ideal. Well, he was a very charismatic person. He's good with people. He's a very eloquent speaker. So, yes, he was very popular with a lot of the ordinary Hong Kong people. But I mean, within the British Foreign Office, there was great opposition to him because they said this is a very specific and a very specialised post and it should have gone to someone with the necessary background as it was always gone before. Previously, governors had always been people who'd, who had a experience in the colonial office, in the foreign office, in the civil service, and who knew the dossier intimately. And we've only got five years to go, so what room for manoeuvre do we have? Within the, the British civil service, and especially within the, the, the business community here, the Chinese business community here, there was great opposition to, to Patton, and in Beijing there was stern opposition to him, because China's position is that Hong Kong belongs to China, the Hong Kong citizens are Chinese citizens. They belong to the PRC. And therefore, democracy is not relevant. That what he did was very good for Britain because he was widening democracy, which is Western value, you know, in the last British colony. But it wasn't actually good for Hong Kong people because he caused a great deal of friction with China. And as you know, after 1997, the LegCo that existed was abolished and a new one was set up. So the, the, the changes he's made were, were rolled back. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I should like on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and of the entire British people to express our thanks, admiration, affection and good wishes to all the people of Hong Kong who have been such staunch and special friends over so many generations. In
where were you on the night of the handover? Well, this is completely Kafka, Kafka-like because uh, I was in the mainland and I thought, well, I must be in a different place to my colleagues. We can't repeat everything. So I went to Guangzhou and um, in Guangzhou they had a big event at a big sports stadium and this event was to celebrate the, the handover. So we had a full stadium, we had bands, we had uh, dancing, a uh, very colourful event. So this TV station <laughs> comes over and says, you're the only big nose here, can we do an interview with you? And I said, of course you can. I said, but unfortunately what I will answer is something you won't broadcast. Um, and I won't answer what you want me to say. Of course what they wanted me to say was the people of Hong Kong are overjoyed whereas the real answer which I wanted to say was that it's an extremely ambiguous, complex feeling Hong Kong people have, that they probably have preferred to continue the old system for another 50 years and they're very nervous about the communist government. So it's far from the joy that you're projecting here in the stadium. So fortunately the reporter was quite understanding and said, OK, well, we, we, we won't interview you. But the, the government in Beijing presented it as one of the greatest achievements of communist rule, that this colony that had been lost through these unequal treaties 150 years ago is now coming back to the motherland, and this is a matter for national celebration all over China, as in Hong Kong. Katie Law, co-convener of the Central and Western Concern Group, was a young mum at the time of the handover. My uh, memory of that period, um, especially the months of June and July 1997, was of torrential rain throughout you know, the whole period. For weeks and weeks, we have very heavy rain. And at that time, um, because uh, I have my uh, daughter uh, born in 1996, so she was just a baby, and I'm expecting uh, my second child. Uh, in the, actually born uh, in October 1997. So how did journalist and author Vodin England feel at the time of the handover? I came to the Foreign Correspondents Club and watched everything on live television with this huge crowd of people. We all thought it was massively exciting and then kind of afterwards we realised, well, we knew all that. We knew that was what was going to happen and lo, it did. What was more kind of moving, I think, for me was waking up the next day um, with a kind of strange feeling about, gosh, is anything going to be different? And then, luckily, looking out the window from our tiny little flat on Hollywood Road and seeing that the fruit juice man who was there every day, seven days a week, every year for decades, outside our window, he was there again on the morning of July the 1st and he was doing exactly what he'd done every previous year and we just found this hugely reassuring and carried on. What was rock guitarist and singer Chris B up to on the night of the handover? Okay, we were actually at Tamar. There was this, I don't know how my husband got it, but we got two seats inside there. It was early evening. Prince Charles did a speech. I have to confess, I don't actually remember what he said. And Chris Patton. And then the heavens opened. But they, they must have known because we all had these fantastic umbrellas, huge, which I still have. And I have some sort of memorabilia from that night. But the heavens kind of opened, right? And it poured rain. 
Then when the rain was over, they had this fireworks display. And, like, I mean, it was, yeah, we were there at Tamar. And, like, I'd never even seen Chris Patton or Prince Charles in my life. But it was really moving. But I was really glad I was there. That's that's because... It was also scary, right? Um, 1997, my, my mother's family is Chinese. A lot of them had emigrated to, like, Canada. I mean, they've all come back since, <laughs> except for one uncle, right? And she's one of 15. Um, but they've all come back. Everyone was terrified of what it would be, what it would be like post-British colony. Like, what, what was China going to do? My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill. You heard the sound of handover footage recorded by Associated Press and a documentary by William Shawshank on Queen Elizabeth II's visit to China in 1986. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.